Good morning, Crosspoint. My name is Leanne Fogel. My husband, David, and I are from Congerville. And today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Let's hear God's word. A person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me, so don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts, and then praise will come to each one from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? You're already full. You're already rich. You have begun to reign as kings without us, and I wish you did reign so that we could also reign with you. For I thank God, I think God has displayed us, the apostles in last place, like men condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. And when we are reviled, we bless. And when we are persecuted, we endure it. And when we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Leanne. If you have a Bible, uh, open it up there to uh, 1 Corinthians 4. We're going to be looking at the first 13 verses. My prayer as a pastor is a, a straightforward and short one. If someone were to ask me what my desire or hope is as a pastor, it would be that I desire to be found faithful. I want to be faithful to the Lord, faithful to His living and active word, faithful to my wife, faithful to shepherding and overseeing in the way of Jesus, faithful to God's calling. The longer I've gone as a pastor, it sums up my heart well. I simply want to be found faithful. And if I had my guess, it sums up your heart as well, that in various roles that you play in life, from your household to your workplace, to where you serve here in the local faith family, that your desire is to be found faithful, trustworthy, dependable, those who have been given trust should be worthy of that trust. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul, who's writing to the church of God at Corinth, is expressing that same desire. He's telling the church, when you look at my life, I pray that you'll see faithfulness. And what does faithfulness look like? I believe you could summarize Paul's encouragement in two ways. To be found faithful means to live for the Lord Jesus in his name, his purpose, his glory, his kingdom alone. And when we live for Him alone, that leads us to a place 
in a position, a posture, if you will, of humility. And in this passage, Paul's confronting the Corinthians because the reports he's heard about them reveal the exact opposite of that. They're not living for his kingdom, and they are boasting in themselves and puffing up with pride, which is then leading them, again, not to a position of humility, but arrogance and haughtiness. It's leading them to look down on Paul and disregard his apostolic authority. So in this passage, and you probably picked it up even from sweet Leanne's tender voice, is that there is a bite to this passage. There is sarcasm to this passage. There is an edge to it because Paul's trying to invoke some humility in the Corinthian church. And in the first three chapters of this letter, we see that this is not the first time he's talked about their need to repent from arrogance and turn toward humility in Christ. The latter half of this passage, the, the crescendo is building in the rebuke, and then next week we'll see it follow with a tone of a caring and loving father. So let's be reminded of the call to be found faithful and that he is faithful as he does that work in us. Verses 1 and 2, chapter 4, a person should think of us in this way as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. And in this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. Paul gives two names to servants, or Paul gives two names to himself and the other apostles, two names that help us give us a picture of how they viewed themselves. The first is servants of Christ. The idea in the original language is that of an under rower. Think massive galley ship where the valued rowers are down below and the captain is on top steering the ship. The under rower role has, is not a prestigious position. You're, you're not handling the wheel up top. Instead, you're trying to just keep your hand to the oar. And your focus is on serving, on listening to the direction from the captain and obeying. Not just hearing the captain's words, but but responding to them, doing them without hesitation. The under rower is not clamoring to be seen. They serve below, underneath, hidden, in submission to the captain who's seen on top in all his royalty and majesty because for the servant of Christ, it's about Jesus, the chief shepherd, the captain of the church, if you will. The second title that Paul uses is Managers of the Mysteries of God. Managers, the the picture in that day is that of a manager of a household. You're not the owner of the house, but you're charged to manage the house and all its functions. Again, the role is that of service. There's an element of leadership that managers play out in the house, but they are not ultimately the owner. And we see Paul playing that role out in this letter, writing as an apostle with authority that's been given to him from the Lord to call brothers and sisters in Christ to repentance. He's not writing from self-appointed authority, but in the authority that the owner Jesus commissioned him with. And he's managing the stewards and stewarding the mysteries of God, the truth about who the Lord is, the grace that's been revealed in the personal work of Jesus. Paul, the apostles, leaders in a local church to this day are charged to steward care for the Word of God, to, to, to manage, to share the gospel, to teach it, help, brother, help other brothers and sisters, including themselves, know it and live in light of it. 
servants of Christ, managers of the gospel and God's household are then called to be found faithful. That's the goal. Faithfulness toward the captain of the ship, toward the owner of the house. Verses 3 and 4, It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not conscious of anything against myself. But I'm not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul, alongside others, planted the Corinthian church. He's, he was with them for 18 months. He's since left to continue his church planting, missionary efforts. Now he's heard re- reports that the church has gone off the rails. And in the Corinthians' pride, one action that's taking place is that they are arrogantly judging Paul. They are prone to dismiss his authority and ultimately then dismiss the authority of Jesus in their life. And here Paul says, it is of little importance to me that I'm being judged by you or anyone else because I'm not living for your applause or praise. What matters is only what the Lord thinks because he's on top of the ship. He owns the house. We've seen thus far in the series that the Corinthians were prone to follow the patterns of the world rather than the patterns of the Lord and His Word. So the Corinthians were basing their their judgment of Paul off of worldly values, things like eloquence and human wisdom, an impressive stage presence, a a human crowd or following. If, If you had those things in the city of Corinth, you were then valued and esteemed And Paul is saying, if you want to measure me based off of the values of the world, feel free. It doesn't mean anything to me, though, because I'm not trying to find my approval or or my identity from the world. Instead, my identity comes from who I am in Christ, given to me by grace alone. He alone, the Lord, sits alone on the judgment seat. Jesus alone is the faithful and true one who who has set Paul free from having to try to find who he is in what others think of him or in how the world values people. And before we think Paul is just arrogantly saying, I don't care what other people think of me. I do me, you do you, me do you, all these kind of weird things that we say nowadays. Paul writes, in fact, I don't even judge myself. Paul says, it matters little what I think of me. Corinthian church, if you think Paul's being arrogant and opposed to all judgment, Paul diffuses that and says, I don't sit on the judgment seat either. Only the Lord Jesus does. And his, evalu- his evaluation is far more sweeping, encompassing than mine would ever be, Paul is saying. He's not saying that he's never evaluated his own life or pursued to have a healthy self-awareness. He meant that he would not replace Christ as his judge. He would not self-appoint himself as king and then setting aside the king of kings. See, when we judge ourselves, we tend to maximize certain parts and minimize others. We love to shine a bright light on where we're nailing it so that we're less focused on where we're not. Or we tend to, depending on our personalities, we either puff ourselves up as how, about how great we are or we wallow in self-pity and condemnation about how terrible we are. Neither of those should be the pattern of a Christ follower, should be the thinking of a Christ follower because our identity is found alone in who we are in Him, how we are viewed and seen and loved by Him. 
Loved ones, some of you are endlessly chasing your identity in the values of this world. And while you may think you catch it at times, it's like chasing a piece of paper across the parking lot on a day like this. You reach up to it, you're almost there. Oh, you lift your foot, there it goes, there it goes, there it goes. And you just keep chasing it. Oh, I found my identity. I've found the home. I've achieved the level of socioeconomic status. Now I've got it. Nope. No, it's not going to satisfy in six months or six years. So you keep chasing it. Or now I'm dating someone. So now I'm experiencing affection, physical affection from others. Now I found it. Or I'm getting feedback about how handsome or beautiful or righteous or loving or other-oriented I am from the human court of social media. Now I found it. Now I got it. Let me give you one example from me, from my life chasing the wind. I have plenty, but here's one for you, okay? Years ago, I would have someone who would consistently get on social media after Sunday mornings and tell everyone, you got to listen to this message. You got to listen to it. It's so faithful. It's so good. It's so true. Yada, yada, yada. I'd see that, and eventually it just started to seep down into my heart. And subtly, looking back, what happened was I began to want to preach in a way that would get a human response such as that. A handful of years later, ironically, that same person would have called me unfaithful to the Scriptures and left Crosspoint disagreeing with preaching and pastoring. In a matter of years, you're so faithful, everybody's got to follow you. Everybody's got to listen to this. You're so unfaithful. Don't listen to him. That's how silly this is when we try to chase our identity in what other people think. That's just an example from my pastoring, but I got plenty from other areas of life. Loved ones, don't chase the paper of worldly identity around the parking lot. It's exhausting. It's frustrating. You also look silly doing it. Have you ever seen somebody do that? You look silly. You're like, that person is not athletic. <laughs> right? But we look silly when we chase our identity in worldly things. Rest in who you are in Christ and continue to, ground, to grow through His Word on knowing that truth more and more, grounded and growing in Him. There's only one authoritative judge on faithfulness. It's not found in a human court. It's not found in what other people think, nor is it found in ourselves, which is equally as tempting. In verse 4, Paul is saying that he's not aware of any great matter in which he has failed in his Christian service. But even so, his confidence won't rest upon himself because he knows he's not perfect. If he were perfect, if he had obeyed the Lord perfectly in every way, then he would not be in need of grace. He would not be in need of rescue or redemption. But Paul, just like all of humanity, fell short of God's glory. And so Paul knows that through the gospel that his righteousness came, not through his own efforts and work, but from Jesus by grace and through faith, that Paul did not get a right standing with God or justified before God through Paul's resume, but through the personal work of Jesus Christ and his, his flawless resume that he lived 
was sinless, yet died for sin that he did not commit, that was ours to bear, substituted himself, and then beat death, beat the devil, beat sin on the third day. In verse 5, just like he did at the end of chapter 3, Paul wants to get the Corinthians to live in light of the return of Christ. Lift their eyes to the one who is faithful, who's coming again, and who will judge the living and the dead. He writes, so don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will, bring both, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. So we learn here of how all-encompassing the judgment of the Lord is, summed up in the word reveal. It reveals what is hidden. It reveals even the intentions and motivations of our hearts. See, human judgments simply look on the outside. The Lord looks at the heart. It, he reveals the heart. And we saw last week at the end of chapter 3, we see in this passage that the Lord's judgment will both reveal and also reward those who've been found faithful those who have built their life upon Christ as the cornerstone, those who have not sought to try to justify themselves through, through their own prideful efforts, but who have trusted wholeheartedly in the gospel of God's grace. Because the revealing leads us to the reality that we are in need of grace. The light exposes the darkness, the depravity in us, but then in faith we look to Jesus who took on our darkness, our depravity, paying its price in full, breaking its power on the third day. Verse 6, now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. I love that we see the affectionate term of brothers and sisters, especially before the bite kicks in of this passage. Paul is writing not for his benefit, but for theirs. He's saying these realities that I'm speaking of, that we are to be under rowers and faithful managers, I've applied these to myself and to Apollos. I've used myself and Apollos as an illustration of how to walk this out so that you might learn from our way of life is what he's saying to the church. And what is Paul's hope for the church then when they look at his life? That they'd repent and turn from their arrogance because their arrogance is leading them to favor some leaders over others. It's leading them to judge leaders by worldly values and wisdom, which is destroying or tearing apart the fabric of the church. The body of Christ is being torn apart. In verse 7, Paul asks three questions intended to reveal, reveal their arrogance. The first one, for who makes you so superior well, it's not the Lord Jesus, because the Lord Jesus doesn't lead His people to a position of haughtiness and arrogance, a sense of superiority, because it's by grace. Second question, what do you have that you didn't receive? In the beginning of the letter, Paul wrote this in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in Him in every way, in all speech, all knowledge. He's saying you are who you are entirely because of the grace of God. The spiritual gifts, the transformation, the change, the work the Lord has done in you, is doing in you. It's all by grace in His goodness. It's His power. He's causing the growth. What do you have that you didn't receive? And the last question, if in fact you did receive it, 
Why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? As if you earned it? Leon Morris wrote this, By the standards of the world, the Corinthians may have had something to boast about, but Christians do not accept the standards of the world. They realize that in themselves they are nothing. They owe everything to the grace of God, which leads to humble worship of Jesus, not haughty worship of ourselves. John Calvin wrote, No room is left for taking pride in ourselves when it is by God's grace we are that we are. And in verses 8 through 13, Paul's tone turns. It's been building in these questions, and it's as if we've hit this moment now of, if you haven't caught what I'm laying down, let me be, let me be direct. Let me speak frankly. And bear in mind, this is read to the church gathering. His purpose isn't to mock the, the Corinthian brothers and sisters. He's wanting instead to, to disrupt their, their thinking. They're thinking that was becoming more like the world than like those who are citizens of the kingdom of God. Notice the tone, but also notice the contrast that Paul is trying to draw. Verse 8 and 9. You are already full. You are already rich. You have begun to reign as kings without us. And I wish you did reign so that we could reign with you also. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place, like men condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the world, but to angels, both to angels and to people. The Corinthians see themselves as secure, not in want of anything. They had gotten to a position that Paul and the other apostles couldn't dare lay claim to. They already have all they need. They don't need to keep growing in the Lord their gifts and wisdom are perfect and complete, not imperfect and incomplete. They'd arrived. They weren't in need of progress anymore. They weren't in need of grace. They were rich, which could have meant financial wealth, and so you're finding your security in that. It could have also meant that, well, we have all these spiritual gifts and all this power, the spiritual maturity, so, so we've already hit perfection. See, Paul is exposing their self-assurance. When you're young in the faith, in our flesh, we are sometimes quick to dismiss the wisdom and experience of the more mature. I've done that plenty. And I would guess that most of you have as well. Paul wants them to abandon their arrogance and in doing so receive his, his loving and truthful words of authority for their good and the good of the church. And Paul sarcastically says, you're so self-assured. It is as if you're already reigning as kings. And yet that doesn't happen for believers until the new heavens and new earth. But the Corinthians are so arrogant, they're assuming they've already hit spiritual perfection. And Paul is saying, I wish you were already reigning as kings. Because if you would, that would mean the suffering and sin in my life would be over. But suffering marks his life. And this is what he writes of there in verse 9. The images out of a Colosseum. Think the movie Gladiator. And Paul is saying, Our lives have been laid down as servants for all the world to see. They've been humbled before the Lord, both uh, humbled before the world, both earthly and heavenly. Verse 10: We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're so strong, you are distinguished, but we are dishonored. According to the world, Paul was foolish weak and dishonored. 
According to the world, the Corinthians were strong, wise, and honorable. But the Corinthians are living for the wrong audience. And Paul is saying, church, you're trying to find your footing in the world. But that's no sure footing at all. It will give way in storm. It will give way in suffering. Corinthians, you're puffing up with pride, which means you've set aside the cross of Christ. You've set aside the grace of God, and that's what the world does. The world looks at the cross and says, that's foolishness. Why would the perfect hero sacrifice his life when he'd done no wrong? That narrative makes no sense to a world that's trying to work its way into salvation. But to the Christ follower, the cross of Jesus humbles us. It leads us not to beat our chests, but to bow our knees. It leads us to unity within the family of God, not self-centered worldly factions. Verses 11 through 13, Paul continues to present the stark contrast between the attitude and life of himself and Apollos and that of the Corinthians. Up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. As you read the New Testament, one theme you see is that the apostles experienced hardship because they followed Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that should not surprise us because the, the apostles were following in, in the footsteps of Jesus, whose life was, was also marked by hunger, thirst, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We see the Corinthians wanting to avoid at all costs the cost of following Jesus. They were more committed to the idol of comfort rather than the wholehearted worship and devotion to Christ who will reward. And for Paul and Apollos, in contrast, they were willing to do wearisome, labor-intensive work so as to provide for the kingdom ministry. They were also seeking to respond to the hardships in the way of Jesus. He writes, when we are reviled, we bless, meaning we reply with good words. We bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. We don't lose heart. We don't give up on our faith. We don't deny Jesus in hopes of diminishing our pain. When we are slandered, we respond graciously, kindly. The New Testament church since the days of Acts has faced persecution, which again shouldn't surprise us because Jesus is chief shepherd and he experienced persecution to the point of his death. Jesus said this in Mark 13, 13, you will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The global church continues to face persecution. I would encourage you in a couple ways in how to walk with our brothers and sisters globally, to grow in your awareness and to grow in your prayerfulness. Awareness and prayerfulness. Persecution.com is a great website to check out to grow in your awareness of what the church around the world faces. And then I'd encourage you to be prayerful. Choose a day of the week. Choose some rhythm in your life where you can be interceding on behalf of our fellow brothers and sisters who we will worship with in eternity and using 1 Corinthians 4 as a guide in how to pray for our fellow family members. 
Paul writes at the end of this section, even now we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. Stephen Um writes this in reflection, to that, in reflection on that verse. Paul says, the treasures of the kingdom are the trash of the world, which offers great hope to anyone who does not measure up. The trash of the world is made into the treasure of the kingdom because Jesus, the ultimate treasure, became like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage for our benefit, for our salvation. The gospel is good news to those of us who by the grace of God have recognized we don't measure up. But our Messiah does, and he is faithful. And that's good and saving news for us today, brothers and sisters. Isaiah 53 reminds us of how Jesus, the perfect one, because of love, became like scum for us. The word should bristle us a little bit, doesn't it? Scum, garbage. It's uneasy to us to think that Jesus was seen as that. And yet Isaiah 53 speaks to that very reality and he did so for our good, for our salvation because of love and for his glory as he walked out of the tomb on the third day. Verses two through six, he, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet, he himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds we all went astray like sheep we all have turned to our own way and the lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all lord jesus you were despised rejected set aside of man of sorrows who was esteemed not and yet compelled by such great love and mercy you were pierced crushed punished for our salvation, for our very lives. We have been healed by your wounds and we, your people, give you thanks and praise. Help us, Lord, through your spirit, grace, and word to live for your applause and praise alone. Help us to stop chasing our identity in the things of this world, but rest in who we are in you. May our lives be about you and who we are in in you and not about us and how we might be viewed by a lost and dying world. Give us a humble worshipful spirit this week thank you that we are your servants that your commands that your word are not burdensome but life-giving thank you that we are your managers that we don't have to create good news but simply steward your good news telling and teaching of it help us be found faithful lord may our conduct match our confession may we follow in the footsteps of you jesus may we respond to those around us in reflection of you. May we endure anchor, anchored to your living hope. And may you get the glory from our way of life this week. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Psalm 107. 
Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord proclaim that he has redeemed them from the power of the foe and has gathered them from the lands, from the east and the west and from the north and the south. This is the story the Lord is doing in us and through us. He is faithful to cause that growth as we plant and water. Enjoy being his servant this week. Enjoy his grace alongside those around you. I love you, church. Have a good week in the Lord.